COP26 may be over, but the conversation has only just begun. And for this podcast, I'll be inviting the stakeholders, firms and organisations that innovate, inspire and encourage small sustainable steps to drive a positive legacy on the road to 2030. Good afternoon and welcome to Climate Conversations, episode 11. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Lancashire, the Managing Director of Zero Matters. Matt, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Um, Matt, we always kind of kick off with a, a little kind of career today and also your current role, which I know is quite fresh as well. But before that, could you give us a little flavour of your kind of career today and your journey into the kind of net zero and sustainability world? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, my my, my career today probably started, obviously, when I left university. I, uh, I studied sociology with psychology when I was at university and probably came out of that not really knowing what to do with life and what where to go and 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 where my career would take me but I always had a, a passion to try and drive opportunities for people um, whether that be from a social context an economic context or an environmental context so that people could lead the best life that they they wish to um, and create those opportunities for people. So my, my career started actually, I'll take it way back, um, even before university, just working part-time in supermarkets and nightclubs and bars and such so like that. So I got a real essence and, and, and focus of the world. Uh, and I think where I grew up as well probably um, shaped some of my thinking about what a fair world was, what a just world was, and and and, the, and trying to create that for as many people as I could. And I I then, when I came out of university, as I said, I I started working for the National Union of Students, which got me probably got me more involved with social and educational issues. Um, that were affecting obviously students and, and many people in society, whether that be from educational educational attainment to access to uh, university and colleges for for people from various social demographic backgrounds to social welfare issues from housing to debt uh, to other types of issues that are affecting students. And part of that actually was coming into contact with more of a environmental angle uh, that was instilling itself into wider thinking about how you solve some of those problems I've, I've just mentioned. Um, from there, I um, went to work for Citizens Advice Scotland, which was probably then to a wider pool of, uh, of people looking at some of those issues around housing, social welfare, uh, benefits, um, anything, consumer issues, anything that affected any citizen, uh, whether that be in Scotland or all the UK, and that was a fabulous job again, just to give you a wider social understanding of, of the issues that people face and the importance of having a thriving economy uh, as well as thriving spaces. And again, there's an environmental edge to that to engage people and, and, and again allow them to lead the, the best lives that they actually can do. Um, and then from there, I, I, I kind of went, well, I've kind of been in a charity sector third sector for a good amount of years uh probably about seven eight years we had new essence since i buy scotland 
So I started working uh, in the private sector uh, for a manufacturing trade association, which really was working for um, some very global, huge private sector organizations, which really kind of got me focused more on what is their impact on the world? What is their legacy? How do they operate? But also drove a, a big commercial side of my thinking as well as uh, a people side to my thinking in terms of how best to treat people within work, how best to get, sorry, how to get the best out of people in work and such so as well. And and that kind of more responsible business angle, um, began to focus on that more individually for myself. Um, and then from there, I was at Remploy, which is about supporting disabled people into work. Again, a lot of social issues embroiled in that. And then from there, I went to SCDI, where I was Deputy CEO of Scottish Council of Development Industry. Um, and at the time when I went to the Scottish Council of Development and Industry, everything was centered around what, what should Scotland be known for? What, what should its, you know, what is our focus to be as a, as a nation, as an economy, and as a society? And I still don't think we've answered that question in, in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, I still think we 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 look over our shoulders a little bit and, and, and compare ourselves to our nearest neighbours rather than try and look out to a guiding star in, in, in the far reaches of the world where we want to say a Denmark, say a, a, a you know other Estonia or other countries that are doing some really progressive things for their economy. But one thing that struck me in that, Mark, was um, there's a key opportunity around clean growth um, about supporting businesses to achieve net zero, understand there's a climate crisis, understand how they could engage in that climate crisis, how they could have an impact on, on achieving net zero. Um, but also, at the same time, going back to what I said earlier, instill those principles of having a growing economy and an economy that functions and um, is world leading, is at cutting edge, is, is supporting high value jobs for people, high wage jobs, is supporting high skilled environment for people. Uh, and a net zero is actually one of the key ways, I think, of achieving that. And people talk about the first industrial revolution, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. I, I, I don't believe in this kind of fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh industrial revolution. I just believe this is the right thing that, to do to allow people to basically operate in society in a in a better fashion to get by getting to net zero. And what I mean by that, people's lives are already being affected in the UK by climate change, whether it was the storms we had over the winter that I think cut half the power off to the northeast of Scotland and the Highlands and Islands for such a long time. And the impact that's had on children, the impact that's had on families and the impact that's had on business is critical. So you already see climate change happening in Scotland and further afield in the UK and obviously globally as well. So being able to resolve those issues to allow society and the economy to function and function well, obviously breeds more opportunity for people, individuals and families to, to have a good life. And, and uh, I think that's what we all want. Yeah, no, definitely, man. I think it's interesting because you touched upon there the kind of economic, social, environmental piece, and I guess that covers into the kind of broader ESG agenda. But I think, you know, 
now it seems that people kind of put themselves in one camp. You know, I'm working in the environmental camp. I'm working in the social camp. Whereas in actual fact, I think someone like yourself, you've kind of spanned across all of those activities, probably makes you a more kind of rounded individual and leader as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, thanks for saying that, Mark. I appreciate that. And yeah, I have, you know, from looking at things from an environmental context when I was at Zero Waste Scotland, um, you know, directed at Zero Waste Scotland, and then SCDI more from an economic uh, advantage and Remploy and NUS as advice from more of a social perspective. And where that guided me to, Mark, um, was quite clear. I, I hear a lot of rhetoric around from politicians, whether it's net zero or something else. And what I always find that's lacking behind it from public agencies and government and elsewhere is actually the actions that will achieve that goal or achieve that vision. And, and I suppose where that brought me to was 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 zero matters, which was um, not just through myself, but for Peter Duncan and, and Andy McKeever, who we we've worked with to support this kind of born out frustration in a sense is that actually businesses want to do the right thing, they might just not know how to, uh, when to, um, how much it will cost, and need to invest into into achieving it. But actually, the desire is there to do so. So actually to get behind some of that rhetoric on net zero and say, well, how do you actually help a business do it? How how did he do that and solve those issues rather than just uh, using a stage to bang a drum on something? I think I think the wall's only been won on 2045 net zero. I think it's now time to say, well, what are the practical actions across public, private sector and third sector joining together to achieve them. And that's where Zero Matters is born from, is to to allow organisations and businesses to achieve net zero and support them to to do so. Uh, and there's a plenty of goodwill out there. And, if, and, and the SG vibe you mentioned is absolutely correct, is that everyone talks about productivity and a lagging productivity in Scotland or the UK or elsewhere in the world, but it's been a, an Achilles heel heel for the Scottish economy and the UK economy for for a decade, if not longer now. And the best way to achieve increased productivity is by having good governance of your organization so that your people uh, are being supported correctly, that they're engaged in the work they're doing, that they're informing the work they're doing, and they feel as if that the company they're working for is a responsible business as such. And that's why I would say good, good governance is from a social aspect that they the business that you work for is is effectively doing good in its local communities or globally where it's operating that it's actually not using slave labor for example in, in the far east or wherever it might be um that it's actually operating in a truly respectful fashion of people and, and the wider global context that a business exists in uh, and, and the last point, probably the most important at this moment in time in the whole ESG debate is that you want to work for a business that is actually trying to protect the planet, is trying to protect people, and is actually trying to protect the economy. And that's effectively what environmental sustainability is, is protecting all those three things and uh, encouraging those three areas to thrive and, and, and push forward. But they can't be seen in isolation. You can't just be a net zero business but treats all your people rubbish 
Yeah. Or you can't just be a net zero business and have poor governance where you're being invested by people you don't know where the money's coming from and could be coming from slavery or, or other nefarious um, pursuits that an investor might have and use that money for. And the reason why I said it affects productivity is would you work harder working for a company that did all those three things and did them well? Or would you work longer? Would you be more innovative? Would you be more thoughtful about that business? People drive productivity. Or would you be more thoughtful, driven, innovative about a business that did none of that? And I think the, I think the clear answer is you'd be far... I, for me, I, I'd want to work for the business that was doing all three. Yeah. No, absolutely, man. It's, it's interesting because I think the the kind of responsible governance pieces really came into the mainstream media particularly around actually about like the kind of the russian the kind of ukraine russia crisis we've seen it with you know yeah. chelsea football club for example and others so i think people are starting to be a bit more inquisitive about you know who is it i work for where are the money coming from in terms of supply chains and whatnot as well there was something else you, you mentioned there about business appetite i think it's absolutely spot on because over the weekend there was a, there was a good article from pwc um, and it was kind of looking at, you know, I think it was the CEO kind of saying, look, businesses mm. do want to get on board here, right? And it was a bit like you said about the 2045 piece, you know, tick box, we've done that, but how do we actually get there? And do you think in some ways governments, you know, Scottish, UK government, let's just say, because we're closer at home, are probably suffering from a bit of a crisis of leadership and that no one really knows how to take this forward. You know, we're all very well at sticking the 2045 mm. mark down, but what do we need to do in the years to come? And it's, it's interesting because a lot of this podcast was born out of what do we need to do in the next kind of eight years to 2030 as opposed to 2045? Do you think there's a bit of a, as I say, a kind of crisis of leadership and a lack of direction as to what government do with industry and business? Yeah, I, I, I think the government's caught necessarily in a two camps here between, you know, effectively trying to do too much and then effectively not doing anything at all uh, or being the the person that that conducts the choir as such or you know creates a new song or creating the drum to that that's being beaten of creating that sound that that people sorry i'm trying to think of a better way of saying this mark but um you know creating that i suppose sense of a vision that that people get behind and you know the expectation for government, the business, and others is is sometimes not always um, seen or heard. Okay, and 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 I think engagement with business is critical for any government, in, including Scotland, to to allow things to happen. What I mean, what I would say in Scotland, to to be fair, is that we do have a lot of businesses that are already looking to a net zero, become net zero. But I think where sometimes where we get lost in this is that we're, we're trying to create new businesses with a new net zero innovation that's going to take over the world and we're going to export this and we're going to do that. And that's great. But those rough diamonds are very few and far between to find. And actually, we've got some tremendous existing businesses that by just achieving that net zero, becoming innovative in their supply chains or in their manufacturing uh, areas or even with their people, um 
a lot of that innovation that can come through that can actually be repackaged, repurposed and sold to the rest of the world too. So where the focus is, is, is sometimes can be quite misleading. And I do think it needs to be on both. Where I think government needs to sit is business owners are business owners because they're bright people. They, you know, people who own a business generally are employing staff. They're making a profit in the main, not always. Um, they're, they're, they're supporting their local communities. They're trying to do the right thing. They're just coming out of COVID too. All, all these things you know, that they have to think about. You've got to be bright. You've got to be wits about you to, 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 to be a business owner and a business leader. And I don't think it's the responsibility of government to go into businesses and tell them what to do and how to hit net zero without having a business brain themselves. They don't. They have a government and policy brain, which is two very different things. Um, commercial acumen over public policy or, or environmental policy or economic policy perspective. I do think where government should sit on this is cr about creating the conditions for environmental net zero sustainability at 2045 and creating the conditions alongside that around economic growth, focusing on areas which will have the greatest impacts on net zero. So for example, how do you how do you drive a circular economy? How do you decarbonize the transport system in Scotland? How do you um, how do you look at you know how do you decarbonize the energy system? All these areas, what are the policy levers that can be pulled to allow businesses to free their arms and those brilliant business leaders that I've spoken about and we're awash with those business leaders in Scotland can then begin to um, feel like the conditions are right for them to achieve net zero and it will push their business on. And that's the key bit for me is the, the policy environment, and the policy conditions, but also with that, not getting, there's a lot of actors in the government space. There's such a lot of different public agencies, not getting one saying this and another saying that this saying that and it becomes very confusing for the business leader to then understand what advice to follow what's the next policy going to be implemented so not effectively uh, creating an opaque policy or directional situation from government that is confusing business leaders effectively to to think about net zero think about how they push that that aspect on I think, I think that's true as well, man, because, you know, you mentioned there as well, business owners do have a, a million and one things to consider, you know, staff, you know, mentioned obviously the pandemic. So in actual fact, you know, creating a condition so that net zero becomes almost just something you do as part of your day-to-day -day business. So it's not something you feel like you need to go out your way for. It's actually just something you're doing as a piece of responsible business, as you would, you know, you're paying staff or whatever else it may be. Whereas I think right now, probably businesses are, are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because they don't quite, the conditions probably aren't there, as you say, and they're probably under an illusion that it's going to be, you know, it's going to cost them X amount, and a lot of the, the red flags are sort of up there. So I think, as you say, government have got a responsibility to create those conditions so the business, it makes it easier for them to adopt net zero. It's about absolutely about creating those conditions for net zero to happen and economic growth to happen at the same time and those two have got to be seen and social progress too of all those things have got to be seen entwined together um 
And I think at the moment, there is a lot of talk, you know, 2045 everywhere you go. But when you listen in carefully to to a lot of the comments, whether the government, whether elsewhere, that I, I, there's a lack of clarity about the clear steps for whether it's an individual or whether it's a business to achieve that for themselves. And people aren't stupid. People are very bright. You know, and particularly Scottish people are very bright as well. And we we understand that zero. We understand the things we need to do. But how do you create those conditions to allow them to do that? How do you create it an easy transition to net zero rather than a difficult and a challenging one? How do you ensure that you know, if your business needs to achieve net zero, it doesn't go belly up overnight and it's done in progressive, staggered way that it's done through a proper planning and business planning cycle that allows that business over a number of years to transition to net zero. Um, how do you um, how do you create the conditions so that the innovations that are coming out of businesses achieving net zero as a nation and as a government, you can start to support and get behind and 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 start to export that knowledge or or those ideas or that thinking or that product or that manufactured piece of kit to the rest of the world. Those are the key areas about the conditions um, to allow it to happen as well. But even if you look at the transport system and energy system, straight away everyone says, well, there's not enough power charge points or there's not enough this. Or you've got to have the structural conditions to allow a net zero uh, economy to happen. Uh, I would argue that's where the focus of the Scottish government and other governments should be. People aren't stupid. Business leaders aren't stupid. They will do the right thing if the conditions are right for them to do so. And that's the key bit. It's making this easy for people to hit that transition. It's not about getting into people's lives and, and trying to change the way they are to operate. They will do that. They get the message. The majority of business owners I speak to I'm very, very keen to get to net zero. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, one probably uh, the most recent example uh, that we we can turn to here about kind of business and government collaboration, if you like, is um, COP twenty six being a kind of obvious example, and you know being kind of being based here as well. And, and I know you were involved as well at COP uh, and a few things as well, Matt. What was kind of I guess your reflections on it now? Because it's interesting, you know. Throughout the, the series, you know, we've had a whole host of kind of different inputs, you know, a lot of people from the private sector, public, academia, and, um, you know, we've had people talk about the energy at COP26 and the kind of youth mobility, which I think we can all agree was sort of great, but then obviously others, uh, I know P- Professor Helm, who we had on a couple of weeks ago, was sort of saying, you know, like, you know, and Lucy mentioned it as well, actually, if you yeah. keep doing something at work, you know, in COP26, it's 26 times. If you're doing something 25 and 26 times, there comes a point where maybe you need to question, is this really working? Um, so I guess, that, you know, for, for us, where do you kind of sit on it? Where, where's your kind of take and perspective on COP and um, COP26 itself? Yeah, sorry, I think about COP26 is that the key for COP26, it brings a laser-like focus to the issue of climate change and and that's critical so it doesn't escape people's minds it's not forgotten it, it's always part of the thinking and, and the direction and i also think it's an opportunity for um 
that clearer influence across the globe as to uh, the impact of climate change and the the key to doing the right thing around climate change and getting that commitment from across global leaders that that attend COP26 is absolutely critical. That that that, that those commitments are key. Um, you know they 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 set the the bar in terms of right 2045, 2050 that that countries will achieve net zero or, or reduce carbon by i think then the issue comes though is to keep coming back to it it doesn't answer the question of how mm-hmm. and and the argument should is should it or should it just leave itself to say we've brought global attention and focus to one of the biggest issue of our time and we've got some good commitment from global leaders on that and then stop i.e in a sense then let and then go back to what I was saying earlier, then let governments set the conditions that support achieving net zero. And then the next step is letting individuals, families, communities and businesses engage within that new kind of set of conditions in the economy and society that allows people to transition to net zero. So I think things like COP, again, it goes back to what is its true purpose and if its true purpose is what i said originally bringing global focus to the the perils of climate change and creating some global commitment on that great but when it starts to do everything else i think then that you know tiny changes change the world not you know trying you know it's not you know a uh, President Biden isn't going to get up tomorrow and solve climate change. He's going to set a vision <laughs> to, to achieve it. Nicola Sturgeon isn't going to get up tomorrow and solve climate change. Boris Johnson isn't either. But actually, it's, it's the culmination of tiny changes by us all that achieve that. There's no magic wand approach to it. And that's that's the bit where I, I, I see where COP should end. Mm, mm. And stop. Yeah. I, I also think, I mean... There's a lot of showcasing of, of, of what people are doing, which I think is fantastic because it gives other people ideas, particularly that might never encounter those types of innovations and thinking. And I'm a big believer in peer-to-peer learning, learning from others. Um, so, you know, if, if there's an organization or company at Comp26 that's doing amazing stuff in energy, and you're like, wow, we should have this in our country. This is what we should be doing. I think that kind of knowledge share peer-to-peer learning is absolutely fantastic and lastly i think it creates a global network for people to tap into for those ideas and that thinking too so i do think it does great things um i do think it should continue but i also think it needs to sense where to draw the line and let governments continue to get on with things and therefore create the conditions to net zero that will achieve those visions and those commitments that are made at COP. I think that's an interesting take, Matt, because we've not probably had someone kind of, I guess what you're saying there as well is that, you know, COP, yes, it has a purpose and it probably needs to define that a little bit more, you know, but it's not necessarily going to solve the world. It's not going to be a complete disaster. You know, it's actually looking at what it can do as a whole. So I think think that's an interesting take. And one of the things we can also discuss quite a bit about, and you've touched upon it already, is around the people aspect and skills as well. And 
Mm. I think, you know, often we hear in Scotland about, you know, green skills and whatnot mm. as well. And, you know, there's often no one really quantifies what that actually means. But to me, it seems that a lot of the skills that we actually need for the kind of net zero process and the transition centres around kind of communication, listening skills. But the, the, the key one really, I suppose, is around leadership as well. And and I think, you know, across a range of sectors, there's always been this leadership drain over the last you know, kind of decade as well in Scotland. So where do you see some of the key skills being for the successful transition? What what does that actually look like in practice without just these generic sort of phrases of net zero yeah. skills or green skills? Yeah, I, I think firstly, no one's ever going to argue against having an upskilled economy or it's net zero, um, tech, IT, whatever it might be, no, no, digital, no one's ever going to argue against that it, it's it's imperative for countries to have high high skilled labor force and people for example it just draws inward investment into your com- into your country and it, it creates a better standard of prosperity increases wages and such so so the question on net zero skills is predominantly more around what type of net zero skills i think you're, you're asking mark as to what would benefit us the most in scotland um not everyone needs a phd in environmental sustainability to be skilled in net zero yeah. and, and not everyone wants one either you know um and there's a misnomer as well about the level of net zero or environmental sustainability knowledge that you need to have to be able to function within a role or within an, a net zero organization. And actually, you're quite correct. Knowing how to communicate on net zero is critical. Um, knowing how to voice a rational argument on net zero internally to be able to influence uh commercial decision making or other types of or supply chain decision making etc it's probably more critical than actually the technical knowledge sometimes because you you kick off that journey you create the momentum and, and and the direction in that so i think there are different levels of environmental sustainability knowledge training and skill base depending on your role and your function within an organization on climate leadership, absolutely, absolutely. The, the best climate leaders I see are not the global ones. We've got all these big green teams and chief sustainability officers. Are your local businesses, which you know we're a nation of SMEs, you know, regional local businesses are our economy, and that's not to um, not not doff my hat to global corporates who again supply a lot of jobs into Scotland as well. We are a nation of SMEs and, and, and regional businesses. And I'm amazed when they do something on net zero and they do it from their own sense of this is the right thing to do. This will make us a more responsible business. This will support our local community better. This will help our people. This will increase our bottom line. It will make us more commercial. And they come out of a plan and they and they just start kicking ass on it. Do you know what I mean? And they just get on with it. And, and it's... And it, and it's businesses like that that make you really proud because they don't have necessarily the resources, so they're building their skill base, they're building their knowledge. But the only reason it's happened is generally they've got climate leadership 
within their executive team, their board, or someone's influenced that from the wider team, so they've been a good leader and listened to the arguments put forward by their people or the discussions that have been put forward by their people too. So it's not necessarily having a knowledge of climate leadership, it's listening to those around you that might have a knowledge of climate leadership that makes you a better leader, that informs your decision making, that you can take to your executive or your board and say this is the right direction to go, etc. as well. So it's a combination of the two, you know, those listening, those thinking, acknowledging diverse viewpoints, taking things on board and coming to the decision that net zero is right. But as I say, th those businesses that have done that from a local or regional perspective are absolutely fantastic in showing leadership way beyond their capacity and capability at this moment in time, but also the organisations that we should be shouting about the most and, and celebrating the most. And I don't think we do enough of that in terms of, wow, this business in Scotland it's only a 15-man band, but now it's completely net zero. It's done it in two and a half years. How they've done that? How, what can we learn? Where can we translate that into another business? You know, what are the steps they've done to achieve? You know, all that knowledge they've acquired and sharing that. And, and uh, again, it's that peer-to-peer -peer part of that. And I think as well, when you get that climate leadership, everyone's in a competitive market space. So... Other businesses go, oh, my God, they've got a competitive advantage or they've got an edge or they're doing something different. We've got that domino effect falls. But I would say as well, let's not forget the social sector or the third sector of Scotland too. And I'm keen to push this in this conversation is that there are limited resources, limited cash, limited skill base in these types of organisations. So anything we do achieve on net zero needs to look out for how do we support these types of organizations? What do they need to get to net zero? How will it be different for them? How do we create initiatives or we, we share knowledge or we support investment to achieve net zero for third sector organizations itself as well? No, definitely, Matt. And, you know, I think uh, there's a couple of things in there as well. And I think you're, you're absolutely right in that a good climate leader doesn't necessarily have to be someone who, you know, has a PhD in you know, you know, sustainability mm. or whatnot. It's actually someone who has a team of relatively skilled people and actually can take bits and pieces of information from them and actually digest that as part of the business. On the, on the second point there as well, I think that's absolutely true that there has to be a recognition that, it's fantastic that we do have some small SMEs doing that, and it's great considering a lot of them will be recovering from the pandemic, a lot of them will have limited resources. But I think you're right, you know, the third sector and the social sector, you know, have went through a really tough time recently, particularly around the funding piece. And I wonder, do you think there's something around, you know, we've seen things in the kind of tech sector around digital boosts to help, you know, mm -hmm. the small SMEs, you know, upskill and the kind of digital front. Do you think there has to be a kind of a clearer focus on yeah. net zero funding and grants? for the type of you know social care providers or third sector providers or really small SMEs who probably who just need a little bit of a boost in terms of funding to help them get on the journey. Yeah, absolutely. I think though those that type of funding will support these organizations because money's tight. As I said earlier, we're we're coming out of COVID. Businesses have been absolutely smashed throughout COVID and whether it's for private or, or public sector organisations, but those smaller ones or smaller SMEs, third sector uh, 
social enterprises have really suffered um, because of COVID and, and, and the various lockdowns. So actually, part of our economic recovery, um, I don't like the word recovery because I, I rather see it as economic, I rather see it as more of a kind of economic drive to prosperity or something like that is, is probably the key bit. It's a bit more positive, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, recovery always sounds like you'll never get back. It's, like, it's a bit like your striker has a breaks his leg. Uh, will he ever regain his pace? Will yeah. he ever be the same player again? And we question that. And actually driving economic prosperity, something like that, is, is a bit more as a positive for me because it sounds like we're going in the right direction. And I do think for those businesses in particular that they do require some kind of net zero investment. I think the danger of just upskilling everyone to go net zero, net zero is that you miss the actual part of going, well, how do you make that then a practical part of that business? So I think some kind of conditionality about the, the grants, about where they're supporting actually true transition to net zero is, 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 is absolutely critical. Um, and building that momentum of case studies of of building that kind of business voice from those SMEs, third sector type organisations that can actually really sound the drum on this and start to push it forward. Um, because what also what will happen as well is that these these types of organisations work with so much of you know people in real hardship in our society too that. <laughs> how do you get them to make better choices in terms of what they're buying or what they're doing with their waste or their energy or how they're tra- traveling to and and actually enabling those third sector organizations that deal with people in those desperate or hardship situations understand and transition to net zero might actually have an influence and effect on the services they deliver to those people as well. And, and that in itself could have a direct impact on a variety of different social or economic areas for the people in tough situations in Scotland right now as well. So what I'm trying to say is there are direct benefits of doing to net zero, but there's loads of indirect ones around social or economic or poverty levels that, that we can look at there too. So it, it feels like, yeah, it's the right thing to do. Um, but again, it's about going back. It's about creating the conditions yeah. to do that, and and that you know, grant system for SMEs is about creating a condition that will support organisations in the third sector, or or wider than that, get to net zero. One of the things we've touched on, Matt, and I think um, you know, it's, it's always a kind of key part in a lot of the conversation is around the economic piece, and I think you've kind of clearly demonstrated that what that path looks like as well. But I guess. Is there, you know, in the last kind of couple of years, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around what a sustainable net zero economy may look like. There's been stuff kind of banded around about, I guess, a well-being economy as well. You know, that's something that's kind of cropped up in Scotland, New Zealand, Finland, and, and others. I guess, what what does a net zero clean growth economy look like to you? And also, do, do we need to, I guess, instead of overhauling the economy and what already works, is it yeah. more case of pivoting and making adaptations rather than completely ripping up the playbook and starting from scratch? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
ripping up the the playbook would suggest complete political societal and economic change which i think the last time we saw that was probably um over 100 years ago as such um and i think i think the the, the sense of no one's going to argue that well-being's good no one's going to argue that net zero isn't good all these things are really positive but effectively you've we've got an economy and society as it is this this moment in time. So how do you influence the change in that economy and that society to create what you said, a net zero economy as such? I think there's a lot of different arguments about a net zero economy, but for prosperity and well-being, so you could argue and it's a very crude argument the most prosperous countries have the best well-being have the best schools the best health service the best benefit system all these different factors that the best nature space all these different factors that influence our well-being as such and if you, you could argue that really weak economies have really poor well-being i'm not saying people aren't happy but you know they, they have poor educational attainment, they have poor health outcomes, etc, etc. So to me, I think net zero has to go hand in hand with economic prosperity, and with that social prosperity, and with that environmental prosperity. And if you get that holy trinity of environment, environment, economy, and social right, you will achieve a net zero well-being economy. And I think the focus can be too much on, oh, we don't need to grow our economy, or we don't need to focus on that area there. Well, I would argue the history books tell us different on that in the sense that economic prosperity as such generally supports a well-being nation and the health outcomes or the education outcomes or the economic outcomes for that or the wage outcomes for that country as well and some may argue some of those are not important some may argue those are important but my sense is if those are heading in the right direction you've got a happier nation and your well-being is somewhat increased. I think that that also touches upon something Dieter was saying a couple of weeks ago as well, Matt, and and, and it's completely uh, kind of linked to what you were saying. But actually, what he was saying is our economy needs to be robust and strong because net zero is going to cost money. You know, initially, you know, it will cost, right? Therefore, which touches upon what you say there, and that we need to have a strong, robust economy to support that transition, to support businesses and individuals, so that it doesn't kind of trickle down and hardship hit. So. I think that's something there that's that, that's kind of interlinked there as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it has to be. I mean, you can't, you know, net zero can be one defining factor of how an economy operates. What you get from it, a net zero is that it, it protects people better, it protects, the, it protects planet, and it makes your economy or business more resilient. So those three things are massive outcomes from achieving net zero as a society. Generally, no nation that doesn't want to protect its people. And by protecting your people, you're protecting them from natural disasters. So how do you prevent flooding? How do you prevent storms that we've seen recently? How do you prevent all these things from happening? 
and the way of achieving that is net zero. How do you prevent, you know, in, in one sense, that social aspect? Well, we've just been through that there, you know, in a sense that if you've got a flourishing economy and a social policy as a government attached to that, you've got generally better health, you know, better outcomes for your nation and, and your people. So protecting your people or supporting your people is a goal of any government or wanting the best for your government. But effectively, what, what I'm trying to say is environmental sustainability, net zero, will protect your people because it'll protect them from storms, floods, other environmental disasters that, that are already happening, not just uh, globally, but in the UK and Scotland that we've seen over the past couple of winters. But second of all, it will also drive you towards thinking, well, how do you reshape the economy to allow new industries, new supply chains, new thinking, new skills that become the industries of, of the future too. So that in itself will create jobs. If you create jobs, you create wealth. If you create wealth, you create spend. If you create spend, you create um, an economy that's flourishing. You also create taxes that go back into social welfare ports or social issues that, that are of our time. And those are the key things for me as to why net zero economy and society is about not just protecting people from a sense of environmental disaster, but from social disaster or economic disaster. Yeah, no, absolutely, Matt. The, the, the kind of final part of the show we look at, Matt, I suppose is really, and you've already touched upon some of this actually, is I guess steps that you see we need to address in the next kind of couple of years, not stuff that's, you know, kind of 2045 onwards, you know, and in actual fact, I suppose this comes into your kind of in this space right now of making those yeah. kind of changes for, for businesses as well. And then finally, as well, optimism for 2045. Do you think that it's a journey too far? Do you think Scotland, you know, can kind of make it or do you still have a bit of uh, scepticism? No, I, I think, so let, let's say the first question first. Uh, I think the three thing, things that need to, to happen are government needs to set the conditions that allow a net zero economy to happen and flourish. Um, the sense is that the second thing I think that needs to happen is that it has to be a, a private, public and social first sector partnership that comes together to drive net zero forward, to share ideas, share thinking, share support, share talent, share thinking, collaborate more. It's, you know, you can't just have the public sector at net zero, not the private and third sector or vice versa. It's got to be across the board. Your economy's got to shift simultaneously at the same time. Uh, it's not about, for me, one sector going first or one subsector going or one subsector of the private sector going first. It's about all the economy shifting simultaneously or else you'll never get to 2045. And I think thirdly, the lessons from COVID are vast. If someone said to us three years ago, you'd be able to create a vaccine in under 12 months and basically get it into the arms of populations that quickly, we'd have all laughed. 
So there's no way government can move that quickly. There's no way private sector can move that quickly. There's no way the public sector can get all that out in time. There's no, we would have all laughed. But what COVID has shown is the art of the possible is that you can make big decisions across public, private, and social sectors that allow to move net zero on very, very quickly as long as people come together. So the speed of change is the one talking about that third thing about speed of change is pace of accelerating towards next year and needs to increase. And I don't think anything can stop us doing that because it didn't with COVID. So arguably what's the difference effectively from learning those lessons and applying them to environmental sustainability. On, on 2045, yeah, I do think we're in danger of not achieving 2045 because as I said, I, 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 when Zero Matters started, it was more out, born out of frustration that there was a lack of practicality, a lot of talk, lack, lack of practical actions being pushed forward, business owners wanting to do things but not knowing where to turn, who to speak to, how to support it, where the investment was going to come from, etc. So, again, without the conditions around that, that becomes very difficult to achieve 2045. I also think a duplication of effort and knowledge as well can affect um, how we achieve 2045 as well. But I also think I'm an optimist as well as a realist, but I'm going to go with the optimist approach. I think, I think if we can, I think we can still change that. As I said, I think COVID has taught so many lessons about what we can do in a very small pace of time if we all take tiny steps we all make tiny changes and the accumulation of tiny changes and those tiny steps from us all will achieve net zero or create the movement to achieve net zero as well and, and that's the key bit for me is is there's not going to be as i say one global leader is going to stand up and wave a wand and net zero is here 2045 it's tiny changes that are in the right driven by the right conditions for them to happen in, and that that's the key bit Matt, it's been a very insightful discussion today. I think we've covered so much on the social piece, the economic piece, but most importantly, the environmental piece. So thank yeah. you very much for joining us there of a busy schedule. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. And uh, yeah, thanks. Good luck for the, the end conversation as well on this. Climate Conversations is a Herald podcast sponsored by Epson. To find out more about their environmental vision, visit epson.co.uk slash about slash environment and take 20% off an annual subscription to the Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Enter HeraldPod 2021 at your checkout and access our award-winning journalism from your mobile, tablet and PC.